I've often quoted Dorothy Sowell saying, the best women I know refuse the binary of either or. But this is true, not just for women, it's true of all of us. How we are hemmed in by binaries, by labels, by limiting or exclusive choices, divisions externally and internal. The internal ones, harder to see, but there, the ways in which we parse ourselves apart, the external ones easier to see and hard to notice how we contribute to them, how we play into them, how we've been conditioned to belong to those divisions and perpetuate them. Bell Hooks says, rarely, if ever, are any of us healed in isolation. Healing is an act of communion. And this communion, this ability to hold the tension of our own wholeness, this ability to hear more notes than just the one that we were conditioned to hear, is a radical act of social transformation. It's a radical act of homecoming, of returning to ourselves as multivocal, being more than this or that. And then in our ability to hold that tension and mediate it within ourselves, we're able to create alternatives and gift each other with that moreness as well. I was initiated into this line of thinking by one of my most esteemed teachers, Reverend Angel Kyoto Williams, called the most intriguing African-American Buddhist by Library Journal. Rev was made for times like these. She's been bridging the worlds of transformation and justice since her critically acclaimed book, Being Black, Zen and the Art of Living with Fearlessness and Grace, which was described as an act of love by Pulitzer Prize winner Alice Walker and a classic by Buddhist pioneer Jack Kornfield. Her work, Radical Dharma, Talking Race, Love and Liberation, is igniting communities to have conversations necessary to become more awake and aware of what hinders liberation of self and society. Reverend Angel Kira Williams and I have interacted on just a handful of occasions, but in every single occurrence, there's such a profound vibration in her presence that is just very difficult for me to put into words. I suppose I can say that it fills me with a yearning for moreness, with a sense of being remembered to something bigger <laughs> that I've always belonged to, and the desire to get off the cushion and participate with the fullness of my being in creating a better alternative to what is now. I can only hope that this conversation has a similar effect on you on your unknowing journey. So let's dive right in to episode 13 with Reverend Angel Kyoto Williams. Reverend Angel, thank you so much for being with me this afternoon and with us, with the community of Unknowing. And typically, I like to open by asking what maps you were handed in childhood, which I loved, by the way, at the opening of your book, Being Black, you say, wouldn't it be great if somebody just handed us a map and told us <laughs> where to go, what to do? So I, I want to begin by asking you, what was the map that you were handed to make sense of reality um, as you were growing up? What constituted those mile markers, those landmarks? Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, you know, I think in in some ways, perhaps the defining feature of my childhood was that my maps were split between the two sides of my family. I had a set of things on my father's side. Civil service was deeply ingrained in his side of the family. And so a kind of uprightness and follow the rulesness and take the safe sure path, apply for this test. My dad and my grandfather were the products of, you know, they were both New York City firefighters. And so they were in a very, you know, white, often very racist institution that also had and came with it a great deal of camaraderie and brotherly love. And that was essential, you know, to be, feel safe with people that you had to literally have your back for the sake of your life. And so that was conflicted, but it was what they knew. They taught from what they knew, which is like this was this sort of safe and direct path. And if you were, you know, of color, if you were black, like you could do this because the, your benefits couldn't be taken away. You're, you know, it's like it was a safety thing, right? And so that was the one map. 
<laughs> my mom's side of the family was uh, quite the opposite. Yeah, I think if one could fly by the seat of their pants, but without anything attached to the seat, that's <laughs> kind of how my mom's <laughs> side, their map, that's how their map, um, you know, day to day, uh, brilliant, brilliant genius, you know, humans and humanity there in their side and uh, far less constrained by convention for many reasons that was the nature of that era. So I, my map is, <laughs> my map was to decide that their maps didn't work for me, that I was going to have to make my own. I spent a lot of time in my early childhood. I also got the map of, you know, people don't pay attention. That was also a really a significant part. I'm like, oh, people don't pay attention. And there's a lot of performing and posturing. And so none of that worked for me. And so I decided quite early, actually, that these ways that people were doing it didn't work for me and sort of navigated inside a presentation of the expectations, but while I was actually crafting my own thing or carving my own path and ran my head into lots of walls and obstacles as a result of that within my family and all the people around me. But that was my map. My map was mine. Well, that's so perfect because usually my follow-up question for folks is, well, what was the point of departure? When did you leap off that initial map? And you're essentially answering that question already. Um, I know that reading Suzuki was a kind of a central pivoting point, but can you articulate moments or does a moment come to mind when that clarity that was forming inside of you that you said you were holding in the midst of performing outwardly of this other belonging inside of you, following this inner compass of yours, do you have a moment that you remember when you felt confident and comfortable and courageous enough to make it very visible that you were leaving the old maps behind? Yes. I'll just say, just to clarify, that it was Shunru Suzuki, so they're both popular. There's uh, DT Suzuki and there's Shunru. Uh, D.T. Suzuki is a scholar, and Shunru Suzuki is a teacher in the a formalized sense of the word and, and important uh, in terms of how my life path ended up. I think the point of, I don't know if I would call it sure, I don't have an option to do it another way. You, you know, I just heard recently this quote, and it was someone paraphrasing, someone quoting Tony K. Bambara and was um, that liberation is the process of having practices to no longer be available to your enslavement. It's the process of developing practices to no longer be available to your enslavement. And so that feels like what was true for me. It was not so much of a, I'm going to go and do this or be this or become this, but rather I'm not going to be available for this. I'm not going to be available for the ways in which you're trying to shape me or you want me to fit in this box or you want me to succumb to you know domination and violence and um, aggression. So I had a, uh, a person that was in my life that was a caretaker that was very abusive. And so somewhere inside of there, I actually made a, a decision that there was only but so much that they were going to be able to get to me, even inside of that. Actually, I remember that fairly fairly clear. I had a little incident. I won't I won't go into the details of it, but there was a little incident. And I was like, oh, I have to actually like navigate this myself. And that's what I was saying about, I realized that people couldn't see you know, people didn't pay attention. And so it became clear to me that my father wasn't paying attention. And so I, whatever, up until that point, waiting for him to find out or discover this abuse and, you know, to take care of it, it, it became clear that he wasn't going to see it. He wasn't going to not see it because he couldn't see it or because it wasn't evident. It was because people don't want to see, right? And so that was shaping for me. And I wasn't going to be available to not seeing. Like, I was going to see. And when I got about 15, I decided to go back and see the person that, that had abused me, who both shaped my sense of early belonging. They were like a caretaker mother figure and also damaged it, like brutalized that sense of belonging. And I needed to do my own confrontation with that. And that confrontation was a choosing to... Like, I was not going to not see. 
I wasn't going to do what the adults were doing around me, which was not seeing the things that were not convenient, didn't fit their picture, were too difficult to navigate, would upset the status quo and so on. And so I, I did that. And that was very, very clear for me. I want to ask you about this not seeing and the ways in which, you know, the, the famous line, familiarity breeds contempt and then contempt profound ignorance, right? And how that leads into the lack of vision that you're describing. And you have this line that took my breath away where you say everything begins by leaving, that we all want the new beginnings, but we don't often ask what needs to be left behind. And there's something that is related to me about that statement and what you just said about the willingness to see, the willingness to see what it is that needs to be walked away from, the willingness to confront what we've become too familiar with, too comfortable with, too enmeshed in. So you say that being in the territory doesn't make you belong. Every time I tried to stay within the lines, they ran over me. So I chose the borderlands and left divisions behind. What is it about leaving the familiar, being willing to see what needs to be left behind, and going into the borderlands of the unknown that, in your experience, grants permission to exist beyond the categories <laughs> of that oppressive binary option? You are this or you're that, you know, in the same ways that you left the two maps to create your own. I've shared this in other spaces before, but it's important, something that helps me communicate it to people. I read once in a review of a book that I never actually read <laughs> that, that Plato said that, you know, one had to be, in order to be a philosopher, one had to be atapos, which is to be, ah is not, and tapos is place, to be out of place. That one had to not belong in order to be a philosopher. I think of a philosopher in these times as the prophets, prophetic activists, the truth tellers, the people that know the truth of these times and are calling people out of the past that we're stuck in and situate ourselves in and we get uh, rooted in the familiar, right? That we get rooted in the habituation to things that are not allowing us to thrive and it's they're not comfortable in that sense of like they provide comfortable, but they're comforting as in they are not the unknown, which is the most uncomfortable place that we can be and therefore leave things behind, right? You have to leave something behind in order to be out of place. You have to leave the demands of your circles and your communities, your the context that you're in. You have to leave the demands of the agreements of what part of you you leave behind in order to belong, and you have to break or renegotiate those agreements. And that's a kind of home leaving, sometimes uh, literal and, and often figurative. So you leave the home of your familiarity. I left the home of the stories of like how this ought to look. I left the stories mm. of who I should be inside of the narrative of my abuse. I grew up in the Oprah era. <laughs> And in which we were learning to speak about abuse, you know, all praise to Oprah for that, like learning to speak about abuse in our families for the first time and, you know, out loud and in public um, and not, not just on our, the couch with our therapist, but to actually acknowledge the level of abuse that was going on in, in our families. And the other thing that I heard in that same time and era, almost in the same breath, is that if you were abused, you were likely to be a, an abuser. And so I left the, that narrative behind, that I was destined to become an abuser. And I felt the kind of pull of that. I felt the fear of that. I felt the sense of like, oh, I, I don't even want to be around children at some point in my life because I, that was, I was so riddled with that. Like, oh, if you were abused, you were likely to become an abuser. And I was abused. And so I was like, boy, if anybody has a chance to do it, it was going to be me. And so I refused it. And I left that behind. I left that and made my way for, I would say, the borderlands of a different story of myself and of a different story of belonging and of a belonging of my own uh, creation. I decided that families uh, were not something that came just by way of blood. And 
that that didn't mean that I loved the people in my blood family less, but that what I wanted family to be, my family was not able to be. And that didn't mean that I wasn't going to have a family in that but I was that I was going to create family and I was going to create family over and over again, not just like one set of fixed people, but because newly created families then demand something else of you, right? Instead of like, mm-hmm. oh, uh, you know, this this the story of like one lover can't satisfy all of your needs. And so one family <laughs> wasn't going to satisfy the full breadth and possibility of who I was as a person. And so I created families. And instead of having a place, I have places. And I see myself as belonging to places. And one might call that the borderlands, uh, you know, which is an ode to Gloria Anzaldúa. One of the things I so appreciate about the way you're framing this is that for those of us who grew up in religious uh, homes, that the belonging to one particular frame was always the experience, or at least in in my experience, I can speak for myself, was an experience of being forced into one pair of shoes (laughs) and wanting to experience the fullness of life. Like sometimes I want to run, sometimes I want to be barefoot. And so, you know, one of the things that I'm observant of is for those in my generation and younger, the sense of belonging in religious structures is changing. And as the containers of the traditions crack and we become more accustomed at distinguishing the containers from the contents, how do you see the shift of the way you describe, you know, you have everything you need. Your spiritual work should take you to the mirror. (laughs) You know, and if, if it tries to take you elsewhere, you say, then you should be concerned, you know. So, What about that leaving that happens when spiritual traditions begin to lure us into leaving ourselves, leaving our own bodies? And I'm curious about your observations with some of the antibody spiritualization that's out there and how the part of the work that we're invited into at this moment seems to be so much about returning to your body, this body, and then in relationship to all bodies. Just not barely a month into the pandemic, I began a meditation group that was just off off the cuff. And the reason is because, as as we all know, uh, so many people were just writhing in anxiety and, um, you know, the deep discomfort of the unknown, you know, that it was like both this is may not be going anywhere anytime soon and don't know what to do with that. I probably would have started it at least two or three weeks <laughs> sooner, maybe two weeks sooner, if it hadn't been for the question that you're asking me about now, which is I did not want to create a thing or generate a thing that was about me and that it was about people circling around me. And for some years before, I had been working on and nuancing a practice that has been underlying many of the other things that I've done without necessarily saying it. But I brought this practice to the fore. You know, now I just call it point practice. The critical thing about point practice is that it's just about returning to yourself. It's, you know, I could say lots of words around it and there are exercises kind of built around the central meditation, or what I, I call it actually the anti-meditation, <laughs> that the anti-meditation, um, the central practice is extraordinarily simple. There's point, uh, which I describe as a particular location in the body, your attention awareness on your breath as your breath rests in the low belly. So your attention awareness, that's hyphenated on purpose, attention, focus, awareness, spacious, right? That dynamic tension. So your attention awareness on your breath, but as your breath rests in the low belly. Sometimes we follow the breath and sometimes we travel with it. And it's like, no, this is just on your breath. And it's in the low belly because A, that's the seat of action. And B, it initiates the relaxation repair response for the body. And so this idea of creating an abode to creating a home for yourself, to generating the courage and deepening your capacity to return to yourself, yourself. 
And I kind of have had a tradition in which everything was about not self and there was no self. So it was a big deal to push that edge as it is a big deal to be pushing this edge and going, yeah, yeah, we got it all wrong. We, we wanted, we went too quick to wanting people to like not have a self. And actually what people need to be able to do is to be able to be able to be at home with themselves and to be able to return to themselves and to know that that returning to themselves supersedes any other teaching, tradition, deity, anything else you can give them that if we can teach people and I and I struck on this like decades ago really it was decade it was it was really a long time ago and I was like should you people go back to themselves uh, because without that we lack the discernment to be able to appropriately be in real conversation in honest in an honest contract with any other spiritual tradition or teaching if we don't have that especially as adults and we know that we know that people can't be responsible held responsible for contracts you know until they're 18 years of age or whatever it may be in you know particular state and so on we know that there is a time at which people can have they have enough cognizance awareness capacity reflection world experience etc to be able to be responsible for themselves in an agreement spiritual relationships are agreements and if we haven't developed people's capacity to be able to be discerning parties in that contract, then they shouldn't be in that contract. Those are contracts that are in pun intended bad faith. Those are bad faith contracts. And, you know, I've shared before that the United States is actually premised on a bad faith contract of getting people to belong by way of of cutting them off, of disconnecting them from, from their fundamental sense of like what is right and wrong, how to be with humans, how to treat each other, people that are different and so on. So I really wanted to make sure that whatever I started was something that was going to be, I mean, people love me and appreciate me and all of that. I get lots of juicy love and appreciation. So I'm not being like, you know, self-effacing, like, ah, you know, it's, it's so mm -hmm, not about me, mm -hmm. but it is about them. They are appreciative because they've been returned to themselves. They've been empowered and encouraged and encouraged again, and even, you know, pushed away from me to return to themselves. And as a result of that, they are more connected. And we've seen this, there's you know, hundreds of people flowing in and out of this practice. Uh, they are more connected to themselves, to their families, to their own truths, to their children. It's not easy always, of course it's not easy, but I think it's more true. And I, and I think that they would agree it's more true. It's such a radical shift away from what I have so often experienced in spiritual context in which it seems as though everybody, there's an infantilization that takes place with the guru-student relationship in which what happens is we want to project all of the knowledge somewhere. <laughs> Someone must know. So if I put all that projection of power and knowledge onto a person, then I get to coast then I don't have to fully trust my own dangerous unknowing. And I want to ask you about this in relation to how you say that to hold queerness as a practice is to be an active radical acceptance of everyone and all things as they are. And there's a non-possessiveness about that. There is an unknowing about that as I read those words. Because I want to talk about this embracing of the practice of queering as a subversion to colonialist you know, needs of labeling in a deterministic way, the control of that, right? So we don't often stop to notice how our need to know, even in spiritual contexts, is really an impulse to control <laughs> and to, to set a power over structure. You know, if I know what these beliefs are and I know what my position is in them, then I can feel right and I can feel safe within mm -hmm. those borders, right? So mm -hmm. how is unknowing part of queering practice as a dissolution of that tendency of that control determinism. I am fond these days of saying that binaries are the devil. <laughs> yes. And so the binaries of male and female and black and white and all of these things, if you look, if you think deeply enough, we don't even have to stay on this podcast for too long. You could just sit down and think and look and, and take your mind and move your mind back over the experiences in your life, and you will find that all of the great heartbreaks, all of the great tragedy of life is a result of binaries. 
someone trying to keep you inside within some kind of binary or you trying to keep yourself there. We are a continuum. Not, we're not on the continuum. We are a continuum. We are trans. We are different in spaces with our parents than we are with our lovers, than we are with our children, than we are with our beloved friends. Uh, we move along the continuum of all of the things that we have labeled things like, you know, gender expression and, you know, not sexuality as in what it is that you do in your bed, like what you end up doing in your bed, but as in the aliveness and the vitality that moves within your body and what you're uh, magnetized for that doesn't have to become about sex, but what gives you um, a, a sense of like excitement and connection if you, if you allow it, but because people don't allow it, you may be thinking right away, like, no, 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 not me but that's because we haven't allowed it. And because we haven't allowed ourselves to be queer, right? To go with what it is that is, feels alive for us. That's what I think about as, as being queer is to go with and wear what feels alive to explore the full contours of the expression that lives in me um, that comes through, that also allows for other people's dignity, right? So that's the one caveat is that it has to be in connection with and in consideration of the full dignity of others and whoever you're in relationship to. That's all it is. It's, it's letting ourselves be in the full creativity of what it means to be a human being and to follow that, you know, into its ends and to, as a result of that, be liberated from any availability to the restriction of that expression. Uh, by way of ex expectation of what clothes you wear or, or who you love or who you have relationships with and so on. I think it's a critical piece of the theory, my overarching theory of belonging is that to queer, so now as a verb, to queer means to disrupt binaries, to disrupt uh, anything, maybe Martin Luther King Jr. would say this, right, with anything that would put a restriction on love, and when we think of love that way, we often think, oh, love, it's sort of like who we're loving. It's somebody else. I'm not talking about loving yourself, I'm, right? I'm talking about like that love. I'm talking about love as appreciation and spaciousness, right? Spaciousness, so love as space to allow to unfold what is folding within you rather than to try to tuck it back into something neat and well-defined so that it will suit somebody else's agenda. And... <sighs> This hits deeply in terms of music, you know, thinking about the idea that you're one note <laughs> as opposed to a chord, as opposed to a melody. There's something permeable and fluid and unfolding in what you're describing. And what I've experienced in your teaching, which is this embodied presence as radically disruptive to privilege, capitalism, consumerism, but your approach to me feels... Like it's this gift because there's a physical and material and cellular intimacy that you're leading us into. It's this bodily presence that can actually hold that tension of harmonization, that tension of paradox, the tension of neither this or that, you know, the non-dual non place. But it's not mental. It's like the rubby dissonance that you actually feel as vibrations in your body. And it's beautiful. Mm -hmm. And it feels good. So... Once again, the capacity for presence is then about attuning, developing a sensitivity for complexity, for permeability, for rupture, for tension. And these are artistic or creative values because, you know, the ability to mediate tension is part of what we need as fuel to build into the momentum of making something new, right? So I want to ask you, as we begin to wrap up the conversation how are embodied practices, and by that I mean the somatic self-regulation homecoming that you've described, this work of liberation, how is it also an act of creativity? And how is creativity a natural expression of what happens when we do come home, when we do open up, when we are able to hold the harmony of wholeness and don't limit ourselves to the binaries? Well, I, I might go at this from a different direction and say that I think that creativity is exactly the result. So creation is exactly the result of a willingness to sufficiently hold the dynamic tension 
long enough, which is in its own time, and with enough spaciousness such that that dynamic tension allows something new to emerge that is neither the one object of tension or the other object of tension. You could look at that and go, oh, male, female, tension, right? Held, could say nine months. And out of that, there's a new expression. Mm -hmm. That just came to me, and this is kind of funny because I don't usually think of gender terms like that, but I'll let, let it all be there. It is essential because one has to have not only the body, right, but the ability to tolerate the tension. And so the embodied practices, the somatic self-awareness practices are about being able to cultivate the being with of the tension of the unknown that it has not yet occurred in the force of those dynamic tensions circling and swirling together. And so there's a force that's generated. And most of us, what we do is we run. Mm-hmm. We go, oh, whoa, that's too much. That's- um, Collapse. Uh, yeah, we collapse, we run, that's scary. And so I talk about it as our our nervous system, right? To tone our nervous system so that we are able to hold that tension and allow that tension to build sufficiently enough so that the new expression can actually come through. And that's a practice. And that's a practice for lots of reasons. First and foremost is because we have a societal structure that has negated and uh, diverted our attention away from being able to hold that tension. So I think of it even further than just our own nervous systems, but actually our psychosocial emotional nervous system, right? It is like the combination of all these things because our nervous systems are not just our own nervous systems. They've been toned. So we have our own particular biology, but we have a sociobiology, the sense of uh, what we're sensitive to or unwilling or apparently unable to hold is a result of socialization converging with one's own particular, you know, biology, physiology, inheritance, DNA, and so on and so forth. It's socialized within our families. Our families are socialized within communities. Why is it that we share an inability to talk about money? There's nothing wrong with money, right? There's nothing peculiar about money. If you go in other cultures, they don't, they talk about money freely. No one thinks about it. Now take this and step up and say, why, why is it so difficult, so uncomfortable for particularly white-bodied people to talk about race? Why is that the case? And, and then to actually have extended that into lots of people of color and, and black folks as well, because our nervous system, our socio, our biosocio nervous system, right? Our psychosocial nervous system has been shaped and toned in a particular way. And it has been toned to actually keep us disembodied from being able to hold the tension that arises in confronting something that's clearly so out of sorts with our organic impulse to be connected, to be curious, to be kind with each other. Mm. And so we, we are navigating that tension and the societies that we operate within constantly sends us communication that says, that being in your body thing, that's dangerous. Why? 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 Religion. So much of religion. The difference between religion and spirituality is the bind. Oh, right? The bind. <laughs> And so that religion yeah. is yeah. meant to bind. Spirituality is meant to free. Mm. I'm so glad that you said that because and I'm trying to squeeze it in because I know we're tight on time, but I wanted to ask you so deeply about desire. Mm. And what is trustworthy about desire mm. in the process of homecoming, but also in the process of longing, of imagination, of wanting to critique the bad by creating the better? Help us distinguish between, you know, desire and attachment in that way. Because for me, desire feels like a force, a force of love. And I've been struggling to articulate exactly how and why it's not attachment. Yeah, I, you know, I call it, um, for the sake of words, I call it yearning. And that we have a yearning. And the thing about the yearning is while the, whatever the object, so to speak, of our yearning is, may seem new, including visions, right? We yearn after a vision that we hold of something that we appear to have never 
seen before. But yearning is a returning. It's not an attachment. It's actually a returning. It's the the, uh, energetic return to what we know to be true and right. And so that force of yearning is a calling. It is a, a wisdom beyond knowledge calling for us to enter into the place of unknowing that moves us past the fixed ideas that we have. Limitation has to upend the boundaries that we've placed on ourselves or that have been placed on us by that psychobiological nervous system shaping. Yearning invites us to transcend those boundaries in the same way that love does. It defies logic. It defies what is known. It defies evidence. So it is an essential force and we will have it. The question is whether we develop the practices that are necessary to respond to our yearning, to allow our yearning to be something that calls us in. And folks, there's no guarantee. I'm not saying you will have yearning and so it'll be fine because it's yearning. (laughs) Everything will turn out well. That's just not how it goes. It's an invitation and it's an invitation into the unknown. Uh, And it is meant to call you past the boundaries. It's meant to call you past the things that are guaranteed for you precisely so you can discover what is yet unknown to you. Creation means something out of nothing. It means something out of nothing. But it is a nothing that's not the nothing of like it's never existed. Everything that's ever been and ever will be and never going to be has existed. So it's something out of the nothing of your current constraints, the limits of your mind, the limits of the, 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 the place that has told you, like, you can go here, but not there. You can reach this, but not that. You can paint this, generate this kind of music or poetry or love or possibility for society, or it's not possible because this works like this. No, to yearn is to express that desire, right? The yearning is the alive vital force of our desire. When that desire turns in on itself and it's no longer of a liberatory quality, in in other words, it's not freeing us, but rather creating constraints, then it's attachment, right? When we let that which we desire or yearn for become something that generates suffering, contraction, makes us smaller, constrained um, in ourselves, Constraints are good things, right? But that we contract within ourselves, that we go from vital to decaying, to decline. Whenever that turns, then we know we've entered into the realm of attachment. We've, we've passed through the veil of d- the divine qualities of desire, the divine calling of yearning, and we've entered into sexistly, we'd say the realm of man. <laughs> we've, we've reduced ourselves into the material. We've reduced it to the material, right? We've materialized. Yeah. And I had this image as you were speaking of the difference between cultivating a garden and seeing it flourish as that yearning turned into active practice desire for the sake of life force. Mm-hmm. And then what happens when we become attached is us trying to pour concrete on the garden. Like, oh, I'm going to just keep this and control it, mm-hmm. which in essence kills it. Mm-hmm. So that tendency to see what is thriving and alive as that tending to the yearning is relational. <laughs> it moves in a relational way. It moves us into seeing ourselves as interconnected. But then arises this possessiveness, you know, and again, this is probably part of what you've described as this learned socio mind of control. Oh, this is moving into unknown places. I don't know if I can go there. I'm afraid of this. So then we pour the concrete on and it takes us back into that place of labeling. So In the wild fields of cultivating and nurturing and embracing the weeds as flowers as belonging just as much as the flowers do, 
I want to bring up this quote that you said in Radical Dharma. You say, because by definition, it can never be static. To be radical is, is to constantly live in the territory yet undiscovered, the liberation yet unknown. And I want to ask you about that. What unknowing is calling you further into the wilds in your own life these days? Yeah. Thank you for that. You know, I feel so just in grace that I inhabit a space of attending the unknown. Like, and one hears this from the place in which we relate to effort as laborious as in a job, then it will sound like, oh, <laughs> I can't possibly do that. I live in a constant state of unpacking whether I have like, I'm like too comfortable in comfort, not in as in, you know, creature comfort. That, that's all fine. Uh, that's part of our material journey. But spiritually, too comfortable. If I'm not on my edges, if I'm not yearning, if I'm not yearning for something, if I don't have yearning, that I'm dead, you know? It's just like, a, like, I, like hang it up. So I think many people think the whole pursuit is to sort of like get after something and, and acquire it. And then when you acquire it, like you've mm. you know, got the holy grail. And for me, it is, is really keeping things like just that edge so that I have something to reach for. Uh, Sean Korn says, you know, it's the reach, not the stretch, so that I keep leveling in right? So as not to create some weird acquisitive state. I keep leveling in. I like leaning in to feel into like, what is calling me? What is calling me that I may not be answering? What am I not giving enough time to? Right now, I would say in a very concrete way for me, that is my art practice and expanding on my expression of art in the world in some ways that kind of fits the bill of I am known for my articulation of words <laughs> you know and I can describe a thing and are you so saying you need to, a break from that sometimes Rev <laughs> you know no, it's not even so much a break it's that like that it not become a way that I cop out of putting expressions that is other than words, you know, that putting mm -hmm. art in the world, putting, and especially art that isn't entirely clear for everyone. Like, you know, I'm a photographer as well. And in some ways that's kind of easy and that too, but my creative art, like it comes, it comes mm -hmm. from me and it will mean something to me and it will mean nothing to someone else. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and to put that, to not just have that for myself, to actually put it in the world, not with an expectation of it's going to, you know, be my, my livelihood or something, but just to say like this too, mm. this too is an expression of myself. I've been doing this weekly write-up and it's called Rev5. And it was, um, I, you know, I'm somewhat opaque to many people. And so it was kind of a stretch out there to just share things that I think about, I care about, you know, that may not mean anything to me. And some people, you know, had like hissy fits about like me talking about Lululemons or, you know, whatever sneakers <laughs> I'm wearing or something. But it was exactly that. It was to break free of or to assert my unwillingness to be bound by ideas about who I am, about what my so-called role as a spiritual teacher means that I can't talk about, you know, yoga pants or sneakers or hip hop or mm -hmm. the music that I listen to or something uh, in, in whatever ways that I got the flurry of like, well, it sounds like you might be trying to sell something. In truth, I was not. But if I am, so what? This is the thing. And so to be able to put that out and to express it has been, you know, leaning in for me. I'm an introvert by nature. I'm closely held. The mere fact of sharing that thing generates lots of conversations that people want to have. Mm -hmm. um, and so it's an edge and I hang out on it. Oof. So much, so much, so much gratitude for that practice. I get those emails and I've noticed your freedom in that. And I have to say, you know, I just recently had a little bit of a, a rant myself on social media because, you know, this is the second podcast I've done. And the podcast I was on prior was a podcast with Father Richard Rohr, you know, the Center for Action mm -hmm. and Contemplation, that whole world. 
And boy, people loved to create a story out of my voice of just mm. this sweet, contemplative daughter. And mm. when they're confronted with the three-dimensional human on social media that's actually a musician and embodied and fleshy and not afraid to be sensual or sexy or artistic and flamboyant, and sometimes I'm painting and sometimes I'm playing music, the mm. comments that mm. I got around, I thought you were this. And mm -hmm. so, so troubling the water in that way yeah. is this freedom of being multivocal, of multivocality, mm -hmm. of redefining ourselves as selves, as a community of expressions. And I want to end by asking, you know, on a personal note that then hopefully becomes meaningful to those who are listening. As I navigate this weird terrain, as we all seek to orient toward the unknowing edges <laughs> as we all learn to pick up new tools of expression and call them good and see ourselves as more than the binary. Do you have any advice for me and through me, the unknowing listeners, as I seek to be courageous, as we seek to be courageous on this path of creative possibility? You know, Brie, I, first I want to just say it's a pleasure to be here and I, there's a lot of things that I don't, I, I think the, the other thing that I'm doing now is like a huge practice is, a, is no, <laughs> right? <laughs> and so there's a lot of things that I don't say yes to, like so that I can be a yes, right? So that I can really be a yes to the things that I need to be a yes for. And it's particularly what you just said that is part of my consistent, like, okay, we have to go back and, and make sure we do this because I have felt that. Um, the vitality in you, right? The the complexity, and I don't know you well, but I have I have felt that come through, and had has had an insistence of of meeting that, and so I think that that is what I would offer to you is uh, a reminder that you are coming through, that you are coming through, and that how you're being, and that your choices for allowing yourself to be, and I love fleshy right, to allowing yourself to be fleshy is a signaling. And it's a signaling to the people that are afraid and therefore say, but I thought you were this, because what you're saying to them is that they can be more. That's what you're saying. And, that's, that, and that is what they're saying to you, is that they can be complete. They can be fleshy. They can be honoring of the whole of themselves. And that you're doing it is coming through whether people are immediately reflecting it back to you or not, and stay the course. Stay the course of returning to yourself and living into all of the edges of who you are and who you are becoming. Because that is the only way that we have forward individually or personally and collectively to really unfold the world that we so yearn for and that our unknowing is asking us to step into. I'm so grateful <laughs> as I sit here crying, but I'm so grateful for your words, not just in this conversation, your lived example. I very much consider you one of my teachers. And, you know, for all of the ways that you courageously invite us into moreness, more than the binary, more than these categories of binding and oppression, more than the fallacy of whiteness, more than the blindness of the familiar privilege. I am so thankful. Thank you for being on the show today. Thank you for having me. So we're learning how to not dissect our journeys into lines and edges, into binaries, but to trust our own fluid unfolding, to queer our categories and keep going into the wildness of unknowing. Here are a few pieces of True North wisdom that I'm taking with me from this conversation. Return to yourself. <laughs> Return to yourself. This as the most primary practice and somatic work more than any other spiritual endeavor. I really appreciated that Reverend Angel talked about the fact that our spiritual relationships are contracts, and most of us are operating in contracts that are not made in good faith. In other words, we are not acting as adults in relationship to these ideas, to these teachings, 
Many of us are taking the posture of infants and are therefore creating power dynamics in which we are not seeing ourselves as equal participants in the creation of the new, of the better. Second piece of true North wisdom, I mean, I just about fell off my chair when Rev said, you know, if you really think about it, all heartbreak is connected to binaries in some shape, way, or form. You know, whether it's forced or chosen, it's the limiting of ourselves to either this or that. And the recognition that holding the tension of working with our nervous system, both our individual nervous systems, but also seeing that work of somatic self-regulation as actively participating in creating a new communal nervous system, that that work is an act of abundance, of liberation, and that when we embrace queering our categories and seeing ourselves as multivocal, as harmonies, then we are creating a world in which that fluid unfolding reality can be unleashed into more possibility. Final piece of True North wisdom, yearning is returning. I really appreciated this insight. It's been something that I've struggled to put language to, um, this instinct that desire isn't bad, that our desire isn't the problem. But perhaps, as Reverend Angel said, it's when that desire turns inward, turns in on itself, and is no longer liberatory, but becomes possessive, becomes about owning or having, keeping, binding, holding in or holding back, then it's attachment. But when it is about an affirmative, expansive life force that affirms the life force in others, we can trust it. It's good. It's part of the creative energy that mounts and builds within us as we learn to hold that tension, as we allow that to, to build and build momentum within us and capitulate into creativity. And I know you're so sick of me saying this at this point in the season, but we're all creators. We are all makers. We are all artists. And the reason I am wanting to encourage us to see ourselves in that way is so that we can get off the bench of our own lives and create, create something that invites not just ourselves into moreness, but each other into moreness too. When the work of justice can be seen through the lens of abundance, of moving into pleasure and possibility, then it's not something that you guess you should do or you ought to do, it's something you actually really want to participate in. That's it for today's episode. If you enjoyed this conversation or if you have been enjoying the conversations on season one of Unknowing, I'm going to invite you to consider becoming a patron or to donate to the show. Bringing you meaningful conversations like these is my privilege. It's what I want to be doing with my time. But I'm also going to need your support in order to be able to continue to do so. We're just a few episodes out from completing season one and have already booked guests for season two. So if you want to co-create Unknowing in community with myself and the rest of the Unknowing patrons, you can visit unknowing.org to find out more. Finally, as the poet Rilke says, be patient toward all that is unsolved in your heart and try to love the questions themselves. I'm trying right along with you. <laughs>